Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a story that involves Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So, (coughs) (coughs) it was good until I started coughing. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology, and first daily Mormon history podcast. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Steve LaSware. He's the author of Life and Death on the Mormon Frontier, and we're going to talk a little bit about Butch Cassidy and a bunch of other outlaws. Steve's also going to talk about uh, Frank LaSware's background, and so we'll learn more about uh, the, the murder victims in this conversation. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. So Frank Lesware was was he Mormon when when he came out here to Arizona was was yeah so Mormon pioneer heritage investigator oh yeah absolutely so so I'll I'll back up uh, or, or talk about a little bit about the family so um, the Gibbons family uh, uh, were, were um, Bill Gibbons was was uh, Gus's father and Bill was uh, one of several uh, many sons of Andrew. Smith Gibbons, who was an early explorer and missionary to uh, the Native Americans, and Bill Gibbons, uh, Gus's father, was also uh, a missionary as well. Uh, and, and but they were called then to uh, uh, they moved around a lot, and then called in, in 1880 to settle in St. John's uh, and uh, with other. So called by Brigham Young, probably. Well, um, no, because he was dead by that point. Oh, okay. But, but and and I don't know specifically whether it was the prophet himself or other Mormon leaders. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they were called to settle there, and uh, and Gus him, Gus was born in 1874, so he was just five or six years old when Gus they, Gibbons. Yeah, Gus Gibbons, the bad guy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and so Gus. Um, uh, uh, he, he was just a young boy, but this was a, a stalwart Mormon family. And in fact, his father, Bill Gibbons, he was uh, 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 called to be a counselor in the bishopric, you know, that was newly oh, formed wow. in, in 1880. Uh, the bishop was David K. Udall of the Udall family, if you're familiar with Stuart Udall, yeah. who was Secretary of Interior, and uh, Mo Udall, who was the representative from Arizona for many years. They are grandsons of of uh, David Udall, okay. who was the first bishop there. So, and and uh, Bill Gibbons was- Good a, Democrats, all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If there is such a good thing as good <laughs> Democrats. And so uh, Bill Gibbons uh, you know, uh, was a stalwart in, in, uh, in both the church and, the, and this community. And uh, and then the Lasweer family, uh, they, uh, they actually, they came from uh, Idaho that uh, they, there were, two brothers and two sisters living in Idaho, and they had another sister who was living in Mesa. And she said, oh, why don't you come down here? And this was 1878 or 79 or so, and uh, it's, we have a good uh, community here. So they came down to Mesa, the four families, you know, so they were all, all married and, and some of them had kids. They came to Mesa. By the time they got there, this, this sister had died um, though she still had a family. So they stayed in Mesa for about a year. It was too hot for them. 
So they decided to move, and they were moving east, and it's a little uncertain exactly where they were heading, but they uh, at some point got called to settle in St. John's, and so they were there in early 1880 as well. So four Lassuer families, including uh, John Taylor Lassuer and his wife Geneva. John Taylor was known as uh, JT, JT and his wife Geneva, and they settled in St. John's. Their first home was a... Um, home they dug out of the, it was a dirt home they dug out of the side of the hill. It was two rooms they shared with uh, two families. And, uh, um, but anyway, Frank Lesweer was born in 1880, shortly after they arrived. So these two men who are in the book, Gus Gibbons, he was six when the Mormons first settled there, and Frank was uh, just born at that time. Okay. And so, um, so that was 20 years, you know, they, they're, they're living there in St. John's, and it was uh, kind of a desolate, out-of-the-way place then, and it was still kind of that same place in the year 1900. They were still plagued by outlaws and rustlers. Uh, it was uh, the, the sheriff, Apache County Sheriff. Uh, um, he, the uh, Apache County is about um, 11,000 square miles, uh, which is the size of the state of Maryland. Oh, wow. And uh, a little, uh, Maryland's 12,000 square miles, I think, so about the same size. He was responsible for law and order. Now, he had some, de you know, he had deputies in, in some of the towns and constables, but uh, it was difficult uh, in a place like that. There were many places to hide. And, and uh, so in any case, uh, and just want, you know, that, that uh, one other thing about the, the town in the year 1900 is, is uh, they didn't have running water yet. That wouldn't be until 1911. So what they did have is there was a spring about four miles away, and so they had a water wagon uh, that probably started in the, about the mid-1880s that uh, a big metal container would come into town three times a week, and you could buy fresh water uh, because, remember, the water from the Little Colorado River really wasn't good for drinking. Very brown. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> and, muddy water. And so they would, um, you could buy a three-gallon uh, bucket of water for five cents. And uh, so it'd come three days a week, uh, though some people, that five cents was a little exorbitant, and they would just drive out and go get their own at the spring. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, three, three gallons, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, also uh, people that there... That wouldn't last you that long, three gallons. Yeah. Yeah, so. that was enough for your drinking, I guess, and, and uh, uh, like they, that for, say, washing clothes, they typically would, uh, they'd get water, and then they'd let it settle... And, and then just you know, take out the top water after the silt oh, okay. and dirt had settled. Uh, when it rained, it was uh, uh, they would put out... Um, but uh, it's the desert that never rains. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah pans and, and buckets and, and everything to catch the rain. Yeah, the, it didn't rain very often. And when it did rain, it often flooded, caused floods and, and, uh, yeah. and the like. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, so, so back, to, back to the uh, uh, these people. So... So the, we're talking the year 1900 uh, when, when this occurs. And uh, I'll get back to Gus and, and Frank, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention, are you, so what were the outlaws mm -hmm. doing in, in St. John's? Uh, uh, and, and Butch Cassidy and his gang were actually, just a little bit before, prior to this, they were operating in the town of Alma, New Mexico, uh, which is, uh, I think, about uh, 100 100, 110 miles away on a ranch. It was the WS Ranch. And, and they were working there. 
they were cowhands, and, and in fact, uh, Butch Cassidy was, uh, was a trail boss, and they were very uh, highly uh, valued cowhands. The, the, uh, their foreman, a man by the name of Captain William French, he wrote a reminiscence about his time uh, in New Mexico, including when these uh, gang members were there, though he didn't know they were gang members at the time, because um, uh, Butch Cassidy operated under the uh, name uh, Jim Lowe. But anyway, um, what, what they, uh, they were highly praised because, among other things, uh, that uh, Captain French said that when they showed up, all of the petty rustling of the, their cattle stopped. You know, they buffaloed it. You know, nobody fooled with the cattle that the, these men were, were uh, taking care of. But anyway, what they would do with this uh, play, they'd use this as a base of operations that to plan uh, uh, robberies and, and, and execute them, that, that maybe, uh, you know, that three or four men would go out uh, after they planned a robbery and rob a train, take the money, come back, and, uh, um, and then lay low for a while. And, you know, just, oh, we're just cow hands. And then maybe a few months later, uh, they'd plan another one, and some some other, you know, group of them would go out and, and rob a train somewhere else and come back. And they did this for a little over a year, it appears. But then a Pinkerton agent, the Pinkerton detective uh, from the Pinkerton Detective Agency, was tracking stolen banknotes, and he traced them to Alma, New Mexico, which is where they were passing them around, among other and places. And when you say banknotes, is this like an IOU or, or is this or, like currency? Yeah, or? currency. Yeah, okay. so currency. So. Um, they trace currency to there, and uh, um, and so the uh, Wild Bunch gang, you know, knew that oh, their cover was going to be blown, and they needed to leave town. And so, um, and this was early 1900 when this occurred. And so, in mid March, sometime in mid March, five of the outlaws uh, left, and they started making their way uh, north up through Arizona. We don't know for sure where they were going. But it appears that you know, or, or it's likely they were you know, maybe going to one of their hideouts, like Robbers Roost in in Utah or Hole in the Wall in Wyoming. Uh, but in any and and then Butch Cassidy and another fellow left a few days later, and uh, they uh, first they stole uh, a pack of horses from a neighboring ranch and then uh, took off north, and uh, um, and and they were hurrying to catch up. So in any case, before Butch caught up with the others. Uh, the, the five outlaws, when they were on their way to St. John's, where they would uh, subsequently buy supplies, but on their way there, uh, they got hungry, stopped and just, you know, killed a, a cow that wasn't theirs and butchered it and ate it and went on their way. But they were spotted by uh, a mailman who was driving past. And so he reported what he saw to the sheriff and the, and, uh, and the owner of the cow was uh, outraged and the sheriff immediately uh, organized a posse. Uh, to go capture these men. Now, they didn't know who they were, of course, but just, you know, five men, you know, killing a cow, that was rustling. And even though it was just, uh, you know, one beef, um, this was cattle country, and, and uh, you know, you didn't allow, you know, anything like that to get started. And, and they were already having trouble, you know, the, the, there was always a, a problem. So he, the sheriff, uh, Apache County Sheriff Edward Beeler was his name, organized a posse uh, to go after them. And, uh, and so that's the posse that Frank Lasweer and Gus Gibbons joined. Uh, and and uh, Gus, at that time... So they were friends. Gus and Frank were friends. Uh, they were... They were uh, I don't know how close of friends they were because they were... Um, 
They Gus, at least had a working relationship. Oh, oh yeah. Well, Gus, Gus was 26. Okay. And, um, and Frank was uh, 19. So, you know, there was a big uh, despair, uh, age difference in age difference. However, it was a small town. Their fathers were, you know, worked together. All the families knew each other. They knew each other very well. Uh, so, um, so they, they, it wasn't like they were best friends, but, you know, they knew each other and, and other people in the, in the posse, you know, they, they were all acquainted with each other. Right. And, um, and so uh, in any case, uh, they, they were summoned to join this posse. And at that time, Gus, he was 26. He was married. He was married to um, uh, uh, Priscilla Smith, who went by Pearl for, uh, at least she was known by Pearl with, in the Gibbons family that she was a daughter of Jesse N. Smith, who was a stake president uh, of the Eastern Arizona stake. And, uh, but in any case, they had been married in 1897 uh, in September, and a month later, Gus went on a mission so uh, t to Great Britain, gone for two years. Mm. So he's married for a month, gone for two years, and he'd only been back four months when he was summoned to this posse. So they were still very much like newlyweds and still you know, uh, enjoying life, getting to know each other, and, and figuring out all the possibilities. Uh, Frank was 19 years old at the time, and he had been kind of wild in his youth and uh, kind of st straightened up. Uh, he'd gone to the Brigham Young Academy for a couple of years. And, uh, up in Provo? In Provo, yeah. Okay. And, and that was pretty common uh, among St. John's youth that they had a uh, um, they had a state uh, a St. John's Stake Academy, uh, so a church-run academy that went through uh, the first two years of high school, and then they would go to BY or Brigham Young Academy. BYA. Yeah, yeah, Brigham Young Academy, and finish their last two years. And he'd done that. He was home, and in, in February of 1900, he received a mission call uh, for to a foreign mission, and he which he accepted. But he was uh, home. Foreign mission meeting. Oh well, the un, un, good question. Unspecified. It hadn't oh. been specified yet. He accepted. Um, but, but it was still going to be in the United States, probably. Uh, no, uh, um, it it would have been oh, a, really a foreign, foreign, a real okay. foreign mission. Because I know that the time. Especially in the 1920s, they talked about Boston as being like foreign, oh, oh, or yeah. New York it was yeah. foreign. And yeah. So that's why I thought that's what I thought you meant. Yeah, and and so um, uh, he had a, his older brother James was in Great Britain on a mission, and so he was wait and and had been gone for two years, and so he's waiting for his brother to get back. Uh, they were very close, and so just so they could visit for you know for a little while before Frank was gone for two years. So he accepted, asked to delay a little bit. So it wasn't a three-year mission or anything? They were still doing two? They were, yeah, the, at least the, the missions that I, that I saw, like mm -hmm. Gus, was gone for about two years. I and mean, so just for context, I'll, I'll tell you this. My grandfather from Idaho got married, served a six-month mission, I want to say in 1910, so it's uh, not too far away. No. But it was just six months, and it was in California, and then he came home. So. Uh. I was surprised when you're saying it was a two-year mission, but maybe they did that when when they were foreign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, so in any case, Frank was um, in charge of the family's uh, sheep business. Then that they uh, JT, his father had an extensive herd of sheep, and uh, and his father said, you know, he was planning to turn over the sheep business to his son to run uh, to Frank when he got back. But in any case, so uh, that's what Frank was doing when uh, uh, when he was 
summoned uh, to join the posse. Um, so uh, as I said through, and so, so there were about uh, 14 to 16 men going out at different times mm -hmm. uh, to track the outlaws, but at the end of the day, just uh, Frank and Gus were the only ones on the trail. And uh, uh, we, we do know, uh, and you know, of the, of the outlaws, you know, one of the things that historians were interested in was, well, who were the outlaws that killed them? And so you know, I did my own investigation as well, though I'll have to say I, I was standing on the shoulders of those other historians of using you know, uh, uh, their research, and, and a, lot of, a lot of research went into it of, uh, well, who could it have been, and, and also you know, who wasn't it, because there were lots of speculation. But anyway, we, I, I feel pretty confident, um, you know, as best we can know, the, of, of who the five were, uh, th that um, most of them are not uh, names that would be well-known to people outside of the historians who are interested in outlaws. One was an, a man by the name of Tom Capehart, who was a, he was well-known in the area. He was, no, he was a very well-known bronco buster, you know, known for that. And so uh, he was readily identified um, uh, by people going when he passed through the area. Another man, uh, his, he went by the name, he was known by, by the name Todd Carver. His real name was uh, Thomas C. Hilliard. Uh, but he was also, this Todd Carver guy, was also well-known because he worked as a cowboy in the area. And also another uh, thing is, is he was missing the forefinger on his right hand, and so an, uh, an easily identifiable mark. <laughs> And so that, uh, Todd Carver was one. And then there were two others, Ben Kilpatrick and Will Carver. And they had both been members of a pre, uh, previously members of another outlaw gang. And, uh, uh, and when that gang broke up, they joined up with the Wild Butch uh, people. And uh, so... And so let me make sure, yeah. Gus Gibbons is part of the Wild Bunch. No, 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 no. Gus Gibbons is one of the people who got murdered. Who well, got murdered. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it's, it's the murders of... Frank Swear and Gus Gibbons. Gus Gibbons. Okay. okay, so that's... So they're so the good guys. They're the good guys, yes, yes. Um, and they were murdered by the Wild Bunch. Okay. Yeah, and so um, and so Gus was with the posse looking for him. So in any case... So basically they'd get a posse together, a bunch of just local residents. Hey, we got to go catch these outlaws. I'm going to deputize you and we'll be part of the posse. We're going to go look for the bad guys. Exactly. That's exactly it. That... that um, uh, that it, that it was the law in uh, New Mexico and Arizona as well that essentially, you know, that if the sheriff called you to join, you were obligated or you, you would have to pay a fine. And, 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 and it was because, well, these areas, you know, they, they couldn't afford to have a police force around, but sometimes they would need one and, and they're large areas. So this is, this is how they, they dealt with it. Okay. Um, and so uh, in any case, uh, I, I suspect that, well, these men joined the posse, you know, not because they didn't want to be fined, but um, this was cattle company uh, country, sheep country, and some of the men who joined either had cattle or sheep. And so, you know, it was sort of like, well, I would it's hope... in our interest to get yeah, the bad guys. Yeah, yes, exactly. And uh, so uh, anyway, back then back to Ben Kilpatrick, Will Carver had been part of a, a previously another outlaw gang, and Will Carver... He, when he traveled north with them, you know, through St. John's, uh, he used an alias of uh, G.W. Franks, and that had been an alias he had used in the previous outlaw gang. And so that was in, 
out, uh, historians able to, oh, okay, that's that's him. And Does it make it hard when people are using all these aliases to track down who's really who? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that was that was part of the problem and part of the challenge to historians is 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 you know figuring out who was who and and that was the problem that that uh, you know detectives you know the Pinkerton agents and 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 others had of of figuring out who they had who's G W Franks yeah exactly and uh, um, the fifth member passing through of the gang um, and and we have less evidence for him than we do with the others but I'm pretty confident it's uh, it's him is. Harvey Logan, who is also known as Kid Curry, and he was the fifth member of the gang traveling through, uh, um, and uh, through St. John's, and and the and and part of the 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 thing about this time time frame for them was was while they had been in Alma, they had pulled off some successful robberies, but also they'd had some gang members killed, they'd had some gang members jailed. Uh, and and uh, one of them was uh, 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 Harvey Logan's uh, cousin was j- was jail or was jailed and, and and then sentenced to prison. And just a few weeks uh, before they headed north, Harvey Logan's brother Lonnie Logan was tracked down and killed. Um, and so they uh, they were not in a very good mood. They'd just been outed from their uh, base of operations. They were you know had some people killed and jailed. And and then uh, Harvey Logan, who was uh, um, uh, probably the the biggest killer among them, you know, was uh, just had his brother killed. Hmm. So they they probably were not sympathetic to uh, being chased <laughs> this time. Now now we do know that Butch Cassidy was not one of these five. Okay. And and the reason why is which is too bad for the story, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We can still call it Butch Cassidy's gang, because because <laughs> uh, essence, you know that that yeah he's he's sort of the triggering person for all of this. But anyway, um, we know he wasn't part one of the five because uh, he does come into the story because as I told you he was trying to catch up to them, and so when he finally was traveling through St. John's with with another fellow, and and it, and by this point he had I think six extra horses that they they had from the ones they'd stolen. The sheriff. Uh, this is like stealing a car for us. Right? Yes, yes. The horse was the car. car yes, exactly. <laughs> and and they stole a lot of them. Um, anyway, the sheriff Ed Beeler, after he got back from chasing the outlaws, he sees Butch Cassidy, a fellow by the name of Jim Lowe. He says who's coming through town, and he and he surmised correctly, as it turned out, this he looks like he's connected with these five guys I've been chasing. So he arrests Jim Lowe. Which is Butch Cassidy. Butch Cassidy. And this other fellow, Red Reaver, Weaver was his name, puts him in jail and, 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 uh, um, until they can kind of sort things out. Butch Cassidy says, oh, you know, my name's Jim Lowe, and I'm a good guy. If you will just telegraph to Alma, New Mexico, and talk to um, William French, who's the, you know, who was my boss there, he'll tell you I'm a good guy. And, uh, and he also... Uh, said, you know, this guy, Red Weaver, I don't know, you know, I just a guy picked up on the trail. I don't know who he is. <laughs> now, Red Weaver was just, he was more of an, I'll call him an associate of the Wild Bunch. He, uh, he held horses and did things like that, but they never thought he had enough courage or good sense. You know, they didn't 
actually take him out to rob he stuff. He was a horse launderer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and so he was just told, and, you know, William French talking about him later said that he was just told, you know, do your job, and he got paid well to keep his mouth shut. Uh, if, and, and he was told to keep his mouth shut if he didn't want to hear unpleasantly from the rest of the gang. <laughs> so he probably went along with the story, you know, that so uh, Butch wouldn't get found out. So um, uh, a telegram was sent to Alma. Um, and uh, later, you know, after the, the boys are murdered and there's another chase for the outlaws, uh, the sheriff's gone, but a telegram comes back from this William French who, at, by that point, he knew that Jim Lowe was Butch Cassidy because the Pinkerton agent had come and talked to him uh, when he was tracking those stolen banknotes and, and said, he showed him some photographs of, he says, do you know any of these men? And, and uh, uh, William French said, oh yeah, that, that's Jim Lowe. And the Pinkerton agent said, no, that's Butch Cassidy, you know, and, uh, um, you know, one of the, mo- and one of the most notorious outlaws. And, oh, okay. So then when Jim Lowe, who was away, came back, um, William French said, well, you know, there's a Pinkerton agent here, and he said, you're Butch Cassidy. And French said, Cassidy just smiled at him, didn't say anything. He just <laughs> smiled, and then, but said, I think I'm going to be on my way. Yeah. So William French knows Jim Lowe is Butch Cassidy. He gets a telegram saying, and don't know exactly what was in it, uh, French French writing years later just says it said do you know this person and uh, um, and so he said he thought he says well I thought about it and so I just decided to write to send back yes I do and so whatever he said essentially vouched for uh, Jim Lowe slash Butch Cassidy and allow and and so Cassidy was released uh. and uh, um, Meanwhile, they kept the other fellow, Red Weaver, in jail, and then and then uh, he was sent back. A deputy from New Mexico, Socorro, came back, uh, and he was arrested for horse stealing, as was Jim Lowe. But he was, uh, or rather, he wasn't arrested, but he was um, uh, indicted for horse stealing when he got back. Red Weaver was, and also Jim Lowe was indicted as well. So they knew they were in together, though. Um, I did read the the uh, the court records uh, of this, and Red Weaver's uh, um, defense was going to be that Jim Lowe told him that he, Jim Lowe, had purchased these horses. So he, Red Weaver, had no idea that they had been stolen. You know that my friend Jim Lowe told me he purchased them. You know, <laughs> of course, by that point, Jim Lowe was long gone. You know, he knew he wasn't sticking around. So Let that's all back. Out hanging dry. Yeah. So that's. Uh, um, but that, yeah, he hung him out to dry. But that was that was Red Weaver's job, you know, and he got paid well for <laughs> he it. He got paid well for being yeah. stood up. And 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 William French talking about Red Weaver after this, you know, he's jailed for it. When he got out of jail, he he said he strutted around, you know, like some you know border hero because you know he'd been in jail and you know all of this and that. <laughs> so uh, um, so in any case, that's how we know that Butch Cassidy was not among the five. But oh, okay. you know, he took off. Uh, uh, after you know, uh, after that, I hope you enjoyed a conversation with Steve Lesware, author of Life and Death on the Mormon Frontier. In our next conversation, we're going to talk about Butch Cassidy's Mormon background. Butch Cassidy grew up uh, uh, in Circle Circleville, and uh, um, 
but it appears that uh, Mormonism never really took in him. <laughs> and he had a younger brother, Dan, who was also a bandit as well. If you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, subscribe on either Patreon or at GospelTangents.com. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire audio uninterrupted. On our $10 tier, if you'd like to see the whole video, you can see that uh, either on YouTube.com slash GospelTangents, or I've got a special Facebook group devoted for uh, full videos. So subscribe at GospelTangents.com and uh, sign up for just $10 a month. For $20 a month, if you'd like to get some bonus content, uh, maybe some of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, you can sign up for that. And then if you'd like to talk to me for $100 a month, we'll, we'll do a monthly phone call on something like Zoom, and you can ask me anything you want. So thanks again. Also, don't forget about the merch, mugs, T-shirts, um, hats, things like that. I'm trying to get the ties up there. Hopefully I can get up, up there. And uh, thanks again for watching Gospel Tangents and click here for some more videos. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.